Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very happy today to be joined by a couple of authors who have written a new book. They also happen to be educators and faculty at UCLA's School of Education. The book they wrote is called Preparing and Sustaining Social Justice Educators. I'm joined today by Dr. Anna-Marie Francois and Dr. Karen Hunter-Quartz. Anna-Marie is the Executive Director of Center X. And Karen Hunter-Quartz is the Director of the UCLA Center for Community Schooling. Really looking forward to this conversation. Anna-Marie and Karen, welcome to Trending in Education. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's great to be here, Mick. Yeah, and this book is really timely in a lot of ways. It's a title that came out on the other side of some of the awakenings and challenges that we all have uh, gone through in 2020. Depending on the books that folks have been looking into these days, they haven't always been able to take into account the transformations and the challenges of the recent years. That is something that also was really excellent about it. And I think it's something that folks who are trying to stay ahead of trends and understand what's emerging. It's nice to, to be able to assimilate something that is very timely. But then at the same time, there's a, a much more timeless quality to what we're talking about here, where part of the book is talking about Center X and, and how it came into being. We'll be talking a little bit more about that in the, the rest of the show. We also begin with a little rite of initiation to have you tell your origin stories, what got you to this point in your professional life, maybe beginning with you, Anne-Marie, and then following up with you, Karen, if, if each of you could just quickly catch us up with what got you to this point in your career. And then from there, I think we can jump into the, the substance of the book. Sure. Origin stories are always good stories and they tend to be really long. So I'm going to try to keep mine rather short. I'm a child of Los Angeles. I grew up in a variety of working class communities among a village of caregivers who really saw me, who made me feel safe hmm. and who saw me as capable when the world didn't see me, this little brown curly hair girl is all of those things. Hmm. I'm the daughter of a native Hawaiian bookkeeper who came to the mainland as a young woman in search of opportunity and a black father who was a vocational education teacher his entire career mm. in both the juvenile justice system and Manuelites High School, which for those who know LA, Manuelites High School is a historic high school in the heart of South LA. And he saw possibility where others saw deficiency of mm. that school. Mm -hmm. I am a teacher through and through who from the beginning of my career fought for more accessible, equitable, liberatory conditions of teaching and learning because of my own experience yeah. in public school. I came to Center X and specifically the teach education program at Center X after teaching and leading in the Los Angeles Unified School District for over a dozen years, the last of those years being at the Vaughn Next Century Learning Center, which was actually the first conversion charter school in the entire country. And it's there that my professional identity as a community teacher and a social justice educator really took root mm. and deepened over the 12 years that I was there. So at Bond, we were serving the working poor and we were confronted with the everyday challenges of being poor and vulnerable. Mm. But even in that struggle, there was hope. There was always hope at the school. The energy around the school was one of hopefulness not yeah. hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And there was a community of families and educators who, like my dad, 
saw possibility. And we were willing to do whatever it took to make our school safe, to make it academically thriving, to make it socially free. If you can understand what freedom means in that social kind of way, um, make it more humanizing for folks who were becoming more and more invisible by the day. And I'd be remiss not to say that that was largely a part of having a dynamic leader in Dr. Yvonne Kahn, who was our principal at the time, who had a vision for public schooling that affected me in ways that I probably don't even fully understand today and that most would find unimaginable. And so that's the professional identity I entered the UCLA teacher education program with 20 years ago. Yeah. And everything that I know about teacher development is drawn from that professional practice, from that upbringing as a brown girl in LA. And it was sharpened by the theory and research that I was exposed to as a member of what we call the beloved community of Centerac. And so UCLA Centerac really gives me a language for what I'd experienced as a working class student and educator of color. And it's given me a place of belonging and possibility and growth that I want for all young children Mm. and the adults that serve them. And so that's really what drives my work. And that's what got me from my parents, little brown girl, executive director of Centerette. Yeah, that's good. There's some uh, congruence to that narrative. I, I appreciate it. I'm sure we're piquing people's interest a bit about Centerax, which is something we'll explain it with some more detail once we hear a little more from Karen. Karen, can you catch us up on what got you here in your professional life? Yeah, thank you. Mine's a very different story. I immigrated from Canada 30 years ago. I was brought up in a white middle-class neighborhood in Toronto. And I was the first in my family to go to college, though, and it was always around the dinner table about the importance of education and you had to go. And when I went to university in Canada, I studied philosophy and the kind of world opened up to me. And I had a lot of wonderful professors that helped me envision the power of education and and the power of ideas to change the world. So when I moved down here to go to graduate school, it was with that completely new to this country and it was completely new to the American educational system. So I became a quick student. I had the great fortune of meeting my mentor, Jeannie Oakes, who is featured in our book. Yeah. And she really helped introduce me to the world of American school reform and research. I went right into doing uh, research on a national middle school reform followed by a big study of the graduates of Center X, which was a longitudinal study of teacher retention. So we looked at what are the conditions under which social justice educators stay in schools. Yeah. And I did that for six or seven years and then had the opportunity of a lifetime to help um, design a new school. And it was really in that moment that I felt most professionally alive and excited because how often do you get the opportunity to sit down with really thoughtful people and think, if we could plan a school, what would we do? And how would we imagine what the future could be like? Mm -hmm. So to me, that's, that was just extraordinary opportunity. As a result of that, the UCLA Community School was created and opened in 2009. And now we've been uh, in business for almost 12 years. We've graduated hundreds of students uh, who have gone on to really exciting futures. So That's where I now sit in my work. I work with two UCLA community schools, one at the Robert F. Kennedy Community Schools Complex in Koreatown in LA and the other 
the NAN UCLA Community School, which is located in South LA near where Anne-Marie grew up. Yeah. Yeah. And the, those stories really come out throughout the book where they're storytelling in a few different dimensions. There's the story of Center X. There's the story of the, the educators and how they're being trained and sustained and developed. And then obviously there's also the story of the communities and the students and, and the families, and they all are represented. It's pretty comprehensive with the different authors and they're all from this community of practice that's really centered around Center X. Anna Marie, I guess you're the best person to tell us the, the story of Center X since you're its executive director. Help catch us up a little bit on what it is, how it was founded, what its goals and aspirations are. And then from there, maybe we could get into how it relates to what the two of you were trying to accomplish in the book. Sure. Happy to. Center X was conceived back in 1992 as a result of the uprisings in Los Angeles that happened as a result of the Rodney King verdict. For those who don't know what happened to Rodney King, he was driving in Lake Uterra, California, which is not too far where I started my teaching career. He was pulled over by the police. The police in turn pulled him out of the car. He was intoxicated and they beat him. And it, the beating was captured on videotape by a neighbor. Yeah. And this was the first time that we really saw police brutality captured in such a raw way, a real raw, authentic way for the world to see, not just for LA to see, but for the nation to see. Yeah. Those officers were acquitted of the crime in 1992. The community was enraged. Here we had again, a black man being violated mm -hmm. and it was playing out right in front of us and it led to uprisings in South LA. It happened that on that day that the UCLA teacher education program was having a faculty meeting in Westwood. Okay, Westwood is where the UCLA campus is. It is one of the uh, most wealthy neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And they were in a high rise on Wilshire Boulevard. And as the sun was setting, they could see, the faculty could see the pockets of flame across the city. And they were growing and they were widening. And Jeannie Oaks, who we like to uh, refer to as the mother of Center X, said, we all need to go home. We need to get home to the safety of our home. But as she was driving home, the thought that was on her mind was, what are we going to do about them? Hmm. What is a elite tier one teacher education program? How are we going to not only respond to them, but how are we going to do our part in preventing that from yeah. happening again? And it was in that moment that what emerged inside of her was that we needed to be preparing teachers, not as politically neutral, not as technicians that understand content and then they put a bunch of tricks in their pocket as a way to deliver content, but rather thinking about teaching as a political act, mm -hmm. teaching as a site of transformation, teaching as a vehicle for the liberation of young people so that they could think critically about the world around them and that they had the tools and the consciousness to do something about it, to prevent it, and to do something about it. And that was how Center X was conceived. And by 1994, 
Jeannie had rallied the university behind her. You know, UCLA is a public university. And one of our charges is to serve the public good in Los Angeles. Mm. And I believe that Center X and now the community school that, that we are a part of under Karen's leadership are the enactment of that desire to transform public school as a service to the city. Yeah. The first chapter after the introduction is Jeannie's essay, I think from, you know, 1994, 1995. And she begins by talking about, she can see the fire. She's basically telling the story that, that you're sharing, Adam Marie. And then as part of that essay and as part of the spirit of what is being put forth in the book is the idea that we need to reimagine the, the role of the education program to prepare teachers, but at the same time, also embrace the support and sustaining function. I, I thought the, the fact that sustain was in the title of the book was, was telling in that it's hard work and the work has gotten even harder. Many would say in the last few years, if, if you look at all the challenges that we're facing. Can you talk a little bit about what it's like to be responsible for a school that is, is trying to walk the walk, not just aspiring to these loftier ideals, but actually then doing the hard work of engaging with educators and communities as they're going through these really challenging times. Uh, yeah, there's never been a harder time to teach right than right now. Uh, this is an extraordinary time. I'm constantly, I, my breath's taken away when I visit the schools and I see firsthand the stress and the anxiety and the load that is being put on schools right now. And we all, the big message is respect and the enormous respect our public should have for teachers right now. The support that they need, the, the value of this work keeping a generation of young people feeling like there's a safe place for them to grow up and mm -hmm. a global pandemic and racial reckonings. And this is a very challenging time. Yeah. I, I will say though, what gets the teachers through it still as tough as it is, there's not a more hopeful place on the planet either. Right. Because what I've witnessed community teachers doing day in and day out is they model hope and they model a, a better future and they model a sense of possibility for young people who may not have heard that be before who are hearing yeah you can go to ucla or yeah you can do what you want you can follow your passions you have a, a really important voice we care about you we want to hear from you and amid all the pandemic when people were talking about learning loss and they're still talking about it, the drop scores and what are we going to do and how are we going to catch kids up? The chorus at our school was, what's the counter narrative here? What are students doing already that people can't see? And it, it, it was an in incredible story of, yes, sorrow and loss and hardship and evictions and all of the above. But there was this part of it that didn't get told and doesn't get told, which is the human element of mm -hmm. Young people helping their siblings in front of the phone while they're being on two screens trying to participate in school. Yeah. To have a sense of camaraderie across a Zoom room to have students say, it meant so much when my teacher just went into a breakout room with me and just listened. 
because I know that they care. And I know the teachers are doing everything they can and make us feel okay right now. The stories of identity around the racial uprisings were just so powerful that our science teacher did a whole unit on skin color. Mm. And we talked a lot about home culture and, and who they are and why that's important and why their voice is so important. There's nothing more leveling yet inspiring than visiting one of these schools. And I yeah. feel really grateful to be associated with them. Yeah. And I, I want to dig in a little more with you in a bit about what, what exactly is a community teacher? I know there's a lot that's involved in that language. But before we do that, I wanted to get Anna-Marie, you a little more in around the My Beloved concept and the idea that there is a beloved community. Can you talk about, I guess, how we can fail our educators and then how in some ways the way Center X has been founded and its mission and its orientation is designed to, to maybe solve some of those problems. So can you paint a picture for how maybe the traditional model is not working and then how the some of the, the community components and the, the ways in which there is genuine love and care and a sense of belonging within the, the educators at the center, how it's a, a counterpoint that, that perhaps we can be hopeful about. Yeah, I entered the teaching profession and having gone through a traditional teacher preparation program, I entered a school district with traditional professional development and nothing was ever really connected for me. I never had a place that I felt like I belong here as an individual, but I belong here to create something bigger than myself. And I found that in CENTREC. And the, the unique thing about CENTREC is that we do think about progressive ideas. We push the envelope on traditional teaching and leading. Mm -hmm. We consider learning and teaching should be humanizing experiences. And yes, our educators need to have content knowledge. They need to be masters at their content. They need to have a set of practices that they can hold on to so that they can engage students. Where we differ is that is, that's the foundation, but we enter it from a very different place. We enter it from a place that recognizes that schooling, public schooling in particular, quality public schooling has not been accessible to particular students, particularly Black brown and poor students. Mm -hmm. And that those students in those communities, number one, deserve a high quality education. But number two, we can't figure out how to provide it unless we see and know them. Yeah. So we train our teachers both as beginning teachers. And, and I should say to you, Mike, that Center X, the, the reason why the book is preparing and sustaining is Center X is a professional learning community that cares for educators from the moment they start thinking about going into education until they retire. Yeah. And once you retire, you can come back to Summer X and still contribute. Yeah. So we, our community grows and they get what they need from Center X in terms of a like-minded, yep. collaborative space of learning and the confidence and the tools that they need to go into really difficult teaching environments and do the good work yeah. of high quality teaching that's focused on equity and social justice that yeah. honors the community rather than the banking model. Here's what you should know. This is the way that you're going to learn it. This is the way that you can tell me that you know, and then bye. Yeah. We don't do that in Center mm -hmm. We honor the assets of the children and the families that are in front of us. 
we get to know young people deeply and contextually, and then we use that knowledge to leverage learning and to guide our teaching practice. And that's very different from the normative way that we do schooling in the U.S. And unfortunately, I think that we're in the moment right now where because of everything that Karen talked about, the myth around learning laws, having all of the investments by the state to bolster teaching and learning now that schools are reopening and the accountability that is connected to that are bringing us back to not seeing young people Mm -hmm. and really just, I'm sorry to say this is jamming a curriculum down their throat, jamming content down the, and then assessing in ways that really don't capture learning. Um, And I'm afraid that you're not going to get the results you want because you're using the same means and assessment that you were using 30 years ago that never served our young people well. Yeah. And in some ways the system begins to respond to the way it's being measured rather than the the actual mission or the principles in which it was founded. What I liked about the book was that you do outline a way in which there are rubrics and metrics and there's plenty of acronyms, an alphabet soup of different methods and practices that allow there to be measurement and accountability along with some inspiration around the whole concept of good trouble, which is the other piece. I'll come back to you, Anna Marie, about that. But how about the whole concept of a community teacher or or what it means to be a community educator? In many ways, I imagine that's something you spend quite a bit of time thinking about. Karen, can you catch us up on what that is? Sure. Yeah, it's a very exciting time right now to be in a community school because the state of California, for example, just passed some legislation that's going to pour $3 billion into new community schools in the state. Federal government is doing the same. And I think post-pandemic, people are realizing, wow, these schools need to be hubs that are going to support vulnerable youth's needs and strengths across uh, a variety of spheres. So community schools generally are schools that are thought of as hubs for social service delivery, mm-hmm. health services, meals. You saw in the pandemic, lots of schools, our schools yeah. became grab and go centers and LA Unified gave out millions of meals, right? During the pandemic, but they're much more than that. And that's very important. Social service integration is very, very important. But the core of community schools is community-based teaching and learning. And it's looking at the context within which people live in a local community. So let's take uh, Pico Union Koreatown, which is where the UCLA Community School is located. It's an immigrant community with enormous linguistic assets. So most students come to school speaking another language. And so as a community-based site of teaching and learning, we developed a bilingual program. Mm -hmm. And we continue to think about language as a strong asset. So a community teacher is going to embrace that idea, right? They're going to say, here we are in our community. Language is such an important asset here. And we have the ability to teach in our home language. Many of our teachers, they are native Spanish speakers and they come to the craft of teaching from communities that are very similar to the communities their students are in. And they bring that 
insight and that wealth of knowledge and that cultural capital to their teaching. And they, in some ways, embrace the context for liberation in that way too. So when you think about social justice education, community teachers are the ones envisioning what the world can be for a set of young people that look and sound and feel like them in ways that, it's yeah. re- that are really powerful. At the core, it's this striving for justice and liberation on the terms of the community. Mm-hmm. The community, again, that with the community's identity and their strength behind that, yeah. not as is so often framed as a deficit. Right. One of the best stories, I think, at the UCLA Community School is when we opened in 2009, we had to get parents to sign waivers to say that we could teach them in a bilingual classroom because it was against the law at the time. You couldn't. Yeah. You had to get a special permission to do that. And now, of course, bilingual ed's all the rage, but it just shows you that at that moment, teachers are willing to say, yeah, we're standing up. We're doing something different here because we know it's best for our community. Yeah. And, and I was inspired by that. It's, it's very much a story of empowerment for educators and, and the sort of mission alignment and then feeling that sense of belonging that we talked about. And then I, I have quoted the, the good trouble quote from John Lewis several times on this show, particularly around, you know, last summer when a lot of the unrest w- was happening in response to, to George Floyd. As we already mentioned, this is a long history dating back to 92, but dating all the way back to the history of Jim Crow and, and the history of slavery in the U.S. That's very much become a hot button issue, a dog whistle that's out there. It's, it's something that people are very activated against lately in the spirit of John Lewis. Anne-Marie, can you talk us through how he would envision or how G.D. Oaks would envision the role of social justice educators in this context that we're in? today? Because it seems like it's challenging to both be a trusted steward as an educator, but then also be able to provoke and and activate against good trouble. I can understand why you might need a, a community to support you through that. Can you maybe provide a little inspiration or language around how to think about being ready to take difficult stances and actually engage in social justice activities as an educator in a way that's coherent in this day and age? I think that there is no more pressing time than now to step into that good trouble that we started making in 1992. Mike, when I tell you the stories I've heard about in 1992, you want to do what? You are a, a white privileged university in LA, you want to go into urban communities and work with those kids? Mm. You want to raise up the mantle of social justice and equity? Are you crazy? They're going to kick you off the campus. That was the feeling back then. Yeah. And we continue to do that work because there was a vision about the transformation of public schools as community development and societal transformation. Yeah. I would say that today it's more needed and actually probably easier to do because there is an expectation. There is a movement Mm -hmm. that was not there back then, a movement behind equitable, liberatory, community-based education that transforms the lives of individuals and neighborhoods and the collective in ways that we have not seen, I've not seen, in the last 30 years. And we really want to take advantage of this moment. And instead of retreating, really leaning into what our fundamental beliefs and values are and translate what we talked about in the founding of Center X 
into more contemporary, not just contemporary terms, but what do we learn about anti-racism? What do we learn about abolitionist teaching? What do we learn about fugitive pedagogy that pushes us forward in really meaningful ways in our search for equity in the schools that we didn't have accessible to us back then? And because of the community schools movement at UCLA, we have spaces of learning for teachers where we can test and pilot and, and innovate in ways that we can't do in traditional schools because for traditional districts and LEA, this is a, a scary endeavor. Even as the moment is ripe for it, we have been socialized in a particular way of rolling out education, K-12 yeah. education. So I'm very grateful that UCLA took on this commitment to community schools. And Karen, I, she doesn't like for me to lift her up too much, but Karen's leadership in the community schools movement at UCLA really advances and really pushes this notion of equity and liberation mm. in ways that some community schools don't. And the book really is our offering in this time of what have we learned over the last 20 years? Yeah. What did we not get right? You know, and in reflection, maybe we should have done something differently. What are the things that it's right for now, but maybe we need to think differently in the future Yeah. for others to consider others who are thinking about, particularly in this moment, how public schools can be transformed. Yeah. 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 And it does come through and it's very much the story of Center X and the community school and this vision and how it maps back to the whole repetitive nature of, of history. But if you're learning and you're, you're playing with your head up, you should continue to get better. I like to quote Nelson Mandela, I never lose. I either win or learn. But how about for you, Karen, how does this expand beyond what you're doing at UCLA? And is that in part the intent of the book to get the message out there? How replicable is this? Who should be advocating if people are excited by this idea? In addition to checking out the book, which is preparing and sustaining social justice educators, what else can people do to maybe pick up on what's working in your context? Yeah, it's definitely a broader movement gaining a lot of speed, as I mentioned, with the, the funding right now. Yeah. We're often asked, oh, are you going to build another UCLA community school? That's not the aim, right? We're not going to franchise the school. It's not a model. Uh -huh. What it is, it's a site of teaching research and service for UCLA. And in serving as that, we conduct a lot of public scholarship at the schools that get the work of the teachers and the grad students and professors and other people that are doing research out into the world. So we spread a lot. We, we have a journal, we have yeah. a lot of media we produce, et cetera. But I think the biggest point we're trying to make is not that we're the only ones that can do that. Yeah. Teaching is an intellectual pursuit. It is tough. It is hard. It takes a lot of thought and reflection. And if there's one message I would want to have uptake is this, right? Respect teachers, give them time to read and write and think and plan together. Yeah. Because it's in those moments that they come up with amazing things that make sense in their community. One quick example at the Man UCLA Community School, there are two science teachers working with two grad students at UCLA creating units 
to teach climate science in ways that bring it home to the community of South LA mm -hmm. and are giving students hope that they can make a difference in that sphere. Mm -hmm. They're doing that by planning and thinking and working together. There's no magic, right? It is hard work and the entire profession of teaching needs to be elevated in our social status hierarchy for what it is. It's yeah. really hard and important work. Yeah, and it does feel like there has been a bit of an awakening around this, especially by virtue of the fact that a lot of us parents suddenly were taking on a lot of what they had just offloaded to their teachers and to their schools. And then now it, it has become more politicized around what's the right way to do this. What I like about the, the community-based orientation and then a lot of what's discussed in the book, it's not exclusively urban, but a lot of the problems that are being maybe mischaracterized in the media are around urban blight. And in some ways, this is telling the, the counter narrative and also perhaps aligning with broader movements around mayoral control of education in urban centers across the country. Anna-Marie, maybe taking a step back and looking forward, where do you see educational programs going in the future, heading into the 2020s? Are you seeing trends that the type of success that the Center X program at UCLA has had may begin to spread to other education programs across the country? Yeah, I think it's an exciting time. As hard as it is, I think it's an exciting time for educator preparation, development, and support because of this past 18 months. What teachers and school leaders have been asked to do as a result of the pandemic and now the reopening of school, the partnerships that have had to come into play between families who have been teaching kids for 18 months, even as teachers were teaching kids for 18 months, that's an asset that we didn't have before. There was sporadic parent involvement, I would call it, in schools. But now parents and teachers have a better understanding of each other. There's an empathy there that was not there before. And I think that we will see deeper school family engagement as a result of it. Mm -hmm. We've always been a diverse city. However, I think that we really deepened our understanding about the breadth of the diversity and the importance of us really seeing the cultural, understanding the cultural nuances that diversity brings into the classroom and teachers being able to not just notice it, but to respond to it in really knowledgeable ways. Mm -hmm. um, I'm a member of the um, California Commission on Teacher Credentialing. And over the last year, we talk so much more about identity and positionality and how your identity as a cultural being and your position, which includes that identity, affects your beliefs about school, what content you choose to teach and not teach, what strategies you use, to, the kinds of relationships that you build with your students and with your family. And I think more and more teachers are considering that. They're looking within in deeper ways so that they can serve their students more thoughtfully and in more critical, empowering kind of ways. I think that's definitely a trend. There's also this trend around investments in schools, particularly in California, that put more of the decisions about where dollars go at the hands of local education agencies so that those dollars can be used 
in more context-specific ways. Mm -hmm. So even at our community schools, they reside in two very different communities, even though you would characterize both of them as urban, both of them as high need, they serve different communities. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, when funding comes to each of those schools, you would expect to see that funding being used in probably really different ways. You're solving different problems. I think that's a very exciting trend. And we educators are given the latitude to make decisions about what to fund. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, what, what does that say? Follow the money and you'll find your beliefs or something yeah. like that. I just know, I think yeah. it's from the wire. All I know is follow the money. Let them fill in the rest. Yeah. And so it's exciting. And at the same time, we're going to find out what are our beliefs. Lo- what are our localized beliefs? Because that's where our money is going to be put toward. Yeah. And so it's both exciting and interesting time right now. You are also a research facility at the same time. Frequently, the miss is on the, the praxis. You talk to me about praxis. That's praxis. My, that's my Alan Iverson joke. You talk about actually applying what you learn as an educator in the abstract or as an academic or as uh, you studied philosophy, uh, as an example, Karen, it's very difficult as a philosopher to figure out how do you then put that into practice, but it does feel like this model allows for that to happen. And in some ways is meeting an unmet need for educators to have this sense of alignment between what they're actually doing and some higher level principles and ideals. I think in addition to elevating and supporting the teaching profession, I agree with Henry. There is this, people are enamored with localism right now. You mentioned like the promised neighborhoods and mm-hmm. people like LeBron James start their own community schools. Yeah. There's this real effort to be grassroots and local because we're in a moment of just social strife and a lot of acrimony. And so people want to go local. They want to be in community with each other Mm -hmm. in order to figure out how to raise their young, solve their problems, because there's this drive, right, to be really humanly connected. Yeah, Um, And that goes deep. The community schools movement is over 100 years old and it ebbs and flows with history. Right now, it is in its sweet spot. Communities need it. They need to be connected. So I think that's, in terms of hope, I think that's a, a beautiful thing. Yeah, that's fantastic. The name of the book is Preparing and Sustaining Social Justice Educators. Anna-Marie Francois and Karen Hunter-Quartz are the editors and contributors to several chapters within the book. Really a wonderful conversation. As we're starting to wrap up here, if folks want to learn more, where should they go? And maybe starting with you, Anna-Marie, any concluding thoughts? And if folks are curious about Center X and they want to learn more where they should go. We welcome you to come visit as soon as Center X redesign is complete. And that'll be at the end of this month. You can find all kinds of information and artifacts about the work that we've been doing on the Center X website, which is centerx.org. And you said something, Mike, about understanding the research and understanding the practice. Yeah. And that's a space that we really live in because we believe that research and practice are mutually informative and we cannot do good, high quality work without living at that space and and seeking justice. And I also want to say that when Karen talks about localized learning, and I think about localized professional learning, a trend that I didn't mention is this movement towards teacher residency programs where we prepare teachers within the school and neighborhood Mm -hmm. that the new teachers are going to be, become part of. Mm -hmm. And 
that has really, we have seen our retention numbers soar hmm. through our residency program. We have seen connections with communities and community members in ways that we could not have imagined 20 years ago. Hmm. And so there's something beautiful about these localized efforts. And if we are all going towards this common goal, educational excellence and equity as a means for social transformation, that's the sweet spot. Mm. And that's what our lane is. And you'll find us at Center X and you'll find us at the UCLA Center for Community Schooling. Yeah, that's fantastic. Karen, concluding thoughts from you as we're wrapping up here? Yeah. So one thing we're trying to do in the Center for Community Schooling is create new content. I'm inspired by podcasts like this one, Mike, and I've yeah. got a group of young people that have created a podcast. They did research on what it means to return to school in a time of uncertainty mm. and shared their findings. We produce teacher research on what it means to be a community teacher, their practice, like the climate science I was talking about. Yeah. And we're producing a set of cases about community schools that don't focus on a checklist of things you should do. Those kind of technical demands are important, but we're trying to be in a space that focuses on the big ideas and the journey. So you can read right now, communityschooling.org, our first issue, which lifts up the UCLA community school struggle to create a powerful language program, to be a sanctuary school, and to be a site of justice and college access. I think by centering the dialogue on big ideas, it's inspiring. People are going to see the hope and the work and the struggle that it takes to make schools really powerful places. It's uh, amazing stuff. Thank you to both of you, Anna-Marie Francois and Karen Hunter-Quartz. One last time, the name of the book, Preparing and Sustaining Social Justice Educators from Harvard Education Press. Uh, check out centerx.org and communityschooling.org. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having us. Thanks okay. a lot, and for our listeners, hopefully you enjoyed this as much as I did. There's plenty for you to chew on. We'll be back again soon, chewing on interesting things. This is Trending in Education. Thank you for listening.